Thanks for joining us on the Crenshaw Christian Center New York podcast. And remember these words, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's jump into the lesson. I hope you understand why I do some printed copies of the message because the whole purpose of teaching is for you to learn and then to learn how to apply what you learn. In other words, teaching the word and helping you learn to apply the word. Otherwise, whatever we do really amounts to nothing. If this word does not help you to live a more victorious, overcoming life, then what we do is in vain. So the purpose for passing out some messages is that you're supposed to take these home and look at them again, study them, and if you have any questions, ask, as some of you did. And that's why I'm going over some of the same things again. Because it's so important that we study the word, learn the word, and then apply the word. Very important. All right, with that said, let me give you some good news. I think that uh, some more good news, I should say, because all the word is good news. The gospel, that's what the gospel means, good news. Uh, but you, I think most of you know that Pastor Fred Price returned to the pulpit out west today. That is good news. We can celebrate that. That is great news. And had it not been for my obligation to be here with you today, I would have been there. That is a momentous occasion. People are flying in from all over the country. Pastors, their wives are coming in to celebrate. And they are recognizing the pastors who helped out during this past year. And of course, you may recall that I did a message out there too. So they are going to honor the pastors who stood in the gap during that time. But that's not why the reason I would go. I would go because I want to be there to support my nephew, who is a great and outstanding teacher of the word. Now, the other good news also comes from out west. Uh, Angela Evans, president of Crenshaw Christian Center, had announced to the board, that's the board of directors of uh, Crenshaw, and had already informed the teachers and the principals that the school would have to be closing because it did not have sufficient revenues to continue after some 33 years. All these years of graduating top students. You know, we have students who graduated from Crenshaw who are doctors, lawyers, teachers in every walk of life. They have gone to all of the top colleges and universities across the country from California to here, Ivy League colleges and so forth. And they have done very well. But the school, like so many churches, you know, most churches have gotten rid of their school because it's just too costly. And Angela finally reached a decision after carrying the school all those years that she had to let it go because in spite of all the fundraising, they did. They were still 375000 short of what they needed. Well, guess what? An angel stepped forth and wrote a check for $375,000. And so instead of announcing today that the school would be closing, 
the school is very much open. But the other good news about that angel is that angel is actually a graduate of the school. None other than my nephew, Alan Crabb. Alan said he was so happy to do that. Amazing. You know, it's one thing to want to give. It's another to be able to give. You know, there are a lot of people who are able to give, but they don't want to give. He has both, and he did. He, he stepped up to the plate, and he gave. And he owes his future. I mean, he gives credit to where his future came from, from, from that ministry, from his grandfather, from his parents, and from the teachings. And he never deviated from those teachings from a little boy. I'd I known him from the time that he got here. And he was faithful, and he's been faithful to the word. And I can remember a time when Alan had a very critical game to play, and he injured his foot, could hardly walk. But do you know that he laid hands on his foot and believed God that he was healed? And you know he was healed in time to play that game two days later? You know, it works. First of all, by his stripes, as Elder Nate has pointed out, we're already healed. You just have to stand on that accomplished fact in faith and believe it and then act on it and so forth. So anyway, those are two bits of good news. So with, with the message in hand and the two bits of good news, again, we can dismiss. <laughs> now, I have, I have the notes here. Does everybody have a copy of the notes this morning? All right. As the notes say... We are continuing our discussion of the subject, why do we study the Word of God? And our focus, focus today will again be on the subtopic, how, well not how, but the secret to applying the Word to your life. Because that's what it's all about, as I said. Now, in our previous lessons, I pointed out that the secret involved understanding the preeminent role that faith plays in getting an understanding of and receiving the things of God. Faith is paramount. Faith is the foundation. As Apostle Price has taught us, after salvation, and I add the infilling of the Holy Spirit, faith is the most important thing in the life of the believer. Learning to walk by faith, learning that it's by faith, it's done unto us. It's your faith. Not anybody else's faith, your faith, and so forth. So the faith required is faith in the Word of God that we believe and study in the Bible. We also must know that this faith has to be matched by action, and that's what we talked about last week. Faith has to be matched by action. Again, Apostle Price defines faith as acting on what you believe. You believe something, you move out in faith and act on this belief. And so, your belief must be matched by obedience to the word that you believe. In other words, if you believe that by his stripes you were healed, then your obedience to that is to begin to act like a healed person. Do the things that you need to do to help facilitate that healing, which may be, by the way, taking the medicine that's been prescribed to you and so forth. It doesn't mean abandoning what the doctors say. You're not out of faith if you follow the 
directions of a doctor or medical care person. That's the one thing we make clear here because some ministries teach that if you are in faith and believe you're healing, you gotta throw away your medicine. Well, unfortunately, some people did that and guess what? They threw away their life. Yeah, so until the manifestation uh, of your healing uh, uh, shows itself, you've got to do the things that are necessary. The corresponding action is to act like you're healed. For example, you might have a situation where you broke four of your fingers. Be grateful that one finger is not broken and give thanks for that and then use that one finger so forth. So here, here's an example we have right here on page one and it's Luke 638 which I think Elder Nate quoted this morning. Luke 638 reads as follows and this is Jesus talking. How do you know it's Jesus? That's why I put it in red so you would know. Uh, Jesus says, give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you see, it will be measured back to you. And we emphasize, you know, some translations take out the men will give into your bosom. It's important for you to know that, that it's going to come from some person. It's not going to fall out of the sky. Uh, you're not, it's not, well, I mean, you might stumble on some uh, somewhere. Maybe a little dog coming up the street with a bag in his mouth might have your money. But for the most part, it's going to be men who give into your bosom. Now, if you have faith and believe in Luke 6.38, your act of obedience would be to give. What does it say? Give. So if you believe it, your first step would be to give, to sow a seed and expect a corresponding return on your giving. Now what messes a lot of people up, they think that they have to have a lot of money to give. No, you give what you can. If you can only give $10 or $1, you give, you give. And there's a multiplier effect that operates in the kingdom. It can multiply your $1, your $10, and it can continue and so forth. This is a way that Apostle Price eventually gave his way out of poverty. I remember, I was there. I remember when he didn't have a pot to cook in. <laughs> and it was pretty bleak, it was pretty bleak. I mean, he had faced bankruptcy. I remember coming one day from, I was a freshman in college and I went to his house because he had gotten recently a, a brand new uh, you know, if I digress like this, we'll be in the dismissal next week. But anyway, let me tell you this story because it's interesting. I went to his house. He lived right down the street from the church that he was the associate pastor of in a parsonage that was provided by the church. So I knock on the door and I go in and I look around and there's practically nothing there. They had come in and repossessed practically everything. The television, the encyclopedias were gone. I had gone there to use them. And you set up beautiful Encyclopedia Britannica. They were gone. In other words, in those days, they repossessed things if you didn't pay for them. Today, they don't bother. They just pass on the cost to the rest of us and so on. But that, they, everything, cost everything, uh, and had to declare bankruptcy. He started by giving the 10%. And today, and you've heard this story, he and Dr. Betty give 46% of their total income. They give it. They give it to... Crenshaw Christian Center, they give some to us here, they help us here, they give to other ministries around the country and around the world, and they give to charities around the world and so forth. And one thing about them, they are not always out talking about what they give. 
but they give 46% of their income. And guess what? As Ellen Nate said in another formula, they live better on the remainder of that. That's what, 54%? They live better on that than they lived on 100% when they weren't giving anything. So it works. It works. So that's the corresponding action that you have to do, the obedience you, ha you have to do. Uh, and by the way, the return on their giving comes from everywhere. I've seen it come from everywhere. I've seen people walk up and he's, he's standing and they'll slip their hand. I told you this before. They'll slip their hand in his pocket. They're not trying to get his money. They're putting money into his pocket and so forth and so on. Now, this is similar on page two. This is similar to the example of Abraham that we looked at last time in James chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, which says this, 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Remember, the question was, is faith without works uh, uh, dead? Does faith without works uh, uh, save you? And the answer is no. That's what it's referring to. Is faith without obedience, faith without corresponding action to that faith. Now, do you see, verse 22, do you not see that faith was working together with his works? Faith was working with his works, and by his works, faith was made perfect. Now, you know the story of Abraham. We're not going to go over the whole uh, thing. I've gone over it twice with you. Abraham was told by God to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, on the altar. God directed him to a place where the altar was, and he led his son there, and he pulled out the knife to slay his son, and an angel from heaven called down and said, do not harm your son. This obedience by Abraham was so absolute and so true that God blessed him in so many ways, uh, which I mentioned last time, and, and, and I'll mention a little bit today. But his action in taking his son and preparing to slay him, that was his obedience and his core corresponding action to his faith. He believed the word of God. He got the word directly from God through the angel. And, and no, I think God spoke to him directly on this. Uh, he got the word from God to do this. Now, in your faith walk, you must act on what you believe if your faith is to have any impact and meaning. This is what the Weymouth New Testament translation says when it says this, interpreting James 2, verse 17. It says, so along faith, if it is unaccompanied by obedience, has no life in it, so long as it stands alone. And I pointed out last time that faith is not a stand-alone spiritual principle or power that will get you anything by itself. In other words, you can sit and say, I have faith, until you're blue in the eyes. But if you don't move and take some action, it's not going to get you anywhere. You know, I love the... Uh, the, the, the statement that the Quakers have, they say when you pray, you're praying for something and believing something, it says, but when you pray, move your feet. In other words, do something, get in action, get in motion. And you find this in life. Things don't happen until you get in motion. And once you get in motion, not only are you offered one job, but then the second and the third will come and so forth. It's just the way the law works. You've got to get in motion and so forth. And this is where I derive the formula faith plus CA, faith plus corresponding action equals result. The actions must correspond to your faith. Now, since I mentioned my nephew, Alan Crabb, uh, let me give you an example of his life. From a little kid, he believed 
his desire was, and he believed that it would happen and he would play in the NBA one day. And he had faith for that. He believed the word. He believed that if you delight in the Lord, God will give you the desires of your heart. And as a youngster, he held to that belief and that faith. But he didn't just sit and hold to it. What did he do? He practiced basketball every time he had an opportunity. When he was a little kid, Dr. Betty bought him a little basket, a little toy hoop. He would shoot baskets in the net until uh, uh, all the light was gone. He practiced, practiced, practiced. And then he practiced his three-point shot and became excellent in that and so forth. So this took him through high school where he was scouted by colleges around the country. He went to UC Berkeley up in uh, Northern California and was the number one player on that team. And of course, he was drafted uh, by the NBA. And last year was the 23rd highest paid player in the NBA. Went from college in two, two and a half years, the 23rd highest paid player in the NBA. But he matched his faith with corresponding action, and that's what you have to do. You just can't sit on your thumbs waiting for something to turn up, saying, I know God, because people have told me this. They come and say, well, I know God will make a way for me. No, God has already made the way for you. As a matter of fact, people are shocked when I tell them this. God has already done for you all that he's going to do. You have to use what he's done. You already have it. You already have it. And I like to point out, for example, that if you think that he's going to drop something else into the atmosphere or into the world that doesn't exist already, no. He closed it out. Everything that ever will be in the world was in the world when he rested. Everything is here. Everything that you need is already here. And you appropriate what you need by faith. And I'll talk a little bit about that later. Now, by way of summary of the issues of faith plus action, I pointed out that all the actions we see in the Bible regarding faith, and it says the word there, you should cross that out, it should be action. Faith and action. I just do that so you'll know that I make mistakes. Action, this comes from not proofreading it one more time. So all the things, all of the Verses that regard faith and word and action can be summed up in the three-word phrase that I introduced to you a couple of weeks ago, act as if. All of the actions, urged or commanded in the Bible, such as be doers of the word and not hearers only, the just shall live by his faith, walk by faith and not by sight. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It is impossible to please God without faith. Living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And faith is acting on what you believe, which comes from Apostle Price, can be summed up in that three-word phrase, act as if. Believers, and that's you, that's me, need to act as if the word of God is true. And that what you believe and have faith for is true. When you say you have faith, you're saying that you believe God's word. You take action when you move in faith on that word, and this motion is an example of acting as if the word is true. Alan acted as if what he believed, that God would meet his needs, that he could be 
an NBA player, and he practiced and perfected his game until he ended up, you know how few, few players from college and high school end up in the NBA? Very small number, very small number. So he uh, acted on what he believed, practice, practice, practice. Now, let me say a little bit about the importance of acting as if, and I've gone over this before, this is by way of review. The phrase act as if is a contribution we in America and the rest of the world get from William James, the psychologist and philosopher, William James, American uh, philosopher and psychologist. James is considered the founder of American psychology having introduced psychology in the first class that was taught in Harvard many, many years ago. He was born in 1842 and lived until 1910. He was an eminent Harvard University philosopher and psychologist, and he's regarded, even today, as the most influential philosopher that the United States has produced, William James. He gave us this sage advice. Act as if what you do makes a difference. It does. Act as if what you do makes a difference. Sometimes people say, well, I don't know my, my job seems so meaningless, or the work that I do around the house seems so meaningless, or just, you know, washing the clothes and, and, and ironing the clothes to make sure the kids have fresh clothes to go to school. I mean, this is just, you know, manual, menial labor. I don't know if it has any meaning. Act as if what you do has uh, meaning or makes a difference, and it does. And just think about it in your life, the things that you do. It could be what you're doing in your career. It may be what you're doing right now. And you may think, well, you know what? This is not where I want to be. Act as if, and you'll get projected to where you want to be. Now, James also wrote this. He says, we can act as if there were God, feel as if we were free, consider nature as if she were full of special designs, which she is, by the way, Lay plans as if we are to be immortal, and we find that these words do make a genuine difference in our mortal life. Now, next sentence, as it relates to our topic, it says out, but that's really our, put an R there, our topic of studying and applying the word. Let me point out that William James was also an exponent of the importance of one's personal religious experience in shaping one's life. He needed extensive studies on the impact of personal religious experience on the individual's life. And wrote this in a book, or published it in a book titled Varieties of Religious Experience back in 1902. You can actually still buy that book today. I bought it in 1970 and have had it ever since. It's an enriching book. James speaks of his own experience, his own spiritual experience which he describes as his personal encounter with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, 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 and Joseph. Now, some religious, religious leaders say that James' concept of act as if was a contribution he made to Christianity. I see it the other way around. It's one thing that Christianity gave to William James, and I give you some examples here. Over the years, I have found that so much of what we see in human and organizational development Developmental studies, books, and psychological modalities is actually traceable to the word in the Bible. And I give you a few examples here. And let me just cite a couple of these and we'll move on. Uh, you can see the act as if theme of William James in a number of scriptures. One of the most prominent ones that we all know is Mark eleven twenty four, 24, 
which says, Therefore, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, reading on page 4, Whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them. When you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. Jesus is telling us to act as if we have them when, at the time, we pray. Very important. That's act as if. Hebrews 11.1, 1, which is our foundation scripture on faith, says that substance, I mean that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. This is telling us to act as if the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen actually do exist, which they do, by the way, in the realm of spirit. But we act as, as if they exist while they're being represented by faith. Similarly, when God says in Romans 4.17 that he calls those things which do not exist as though they did, he's actually telling us to act as if they do exist. And 1 Corinthians, not 1, but 2 Corinthians 5.7, our familiar verse, we're told to walk by faith and not by sight. Walking by faith, which is, by the way, walking and relying on the word, it's telling us to act as if that word is true that we are standing on and walking by. That's why you can walk by it because you have to believe and act as if it's true. Now, when Apostle Price defines faith as acting on what you believe, it's the same as saying faith is acting as if what you believe is true and so forth. And you can read the others. I'll just cite the one at the bottom. That's Joel 3.10 where God says, let the weak say, I am strong. In other words, God is saying to the weak, act as if you're strong. So, forth. so those are just some examples. Now, as I say, the Bible is full of these examples uh, showing us how and why we should act as if the word is true. And as I say at the top of page five, we are helped in this acting as if the word is true, that the word of God is true, by what Jesus tells us in John 17, 17. In John 17, 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. He's praying actually for his disciples. And he's, and he's asking him to do things for the Father. And he, and he says, uh, your word is truth. He says, sanctify them by your word, Father. And your word is true. That's a complete statement. God's word is truth. So you can act as if it's true. So forth. We're told that. God's word is truth. And Jesus also tells us uh, also tells us, there must be a typo there, but he also tells us that this truth is the answer to anything that we may have that may have you in bondage, whether this is sickness, demon possession, or financial material lack. He's saying that the truth, the word, is the answer to that. And how does he tell us this? He says in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, he says, if you abide in my word, his word is God's word. You are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It's knowing the word, which is the truth. That's what will make you, make you free. And that's why we study the Bible, so we can know this truth, freedom-setting word that we can live by. So the secret to applying the word to your life is to act as if the word of God in the Bible is true. And a paraphrase the word of William James, if you act as if the word is true, it shall be and become true unto you. This will be true for you if you're acting as if is a continuous 
ongoing praxis and becomes like faith a lifestyle. In other words, you can't act one day or one hour. This has got to be a continuous practice daily. Now, in this discussion of the secret of applying the word to your life, we have looked at the importance of adding action or works to your faith, as I described that Alan did or Apostle Price did in terms of giving. Now, let's turn to another important function of faith, where faith serves you as your focus guide and as your focus keeper. Now, this is new, so I'm, we'll spend a little time for this and we'll get as far as we can today. Now, over the years, we've learned a lot about faith from the teachings of Apostle Frederick Casey Price. I dare say we've learned everything about faith from the teachings of Apostle Frederick Casey Price. But today, I want to walk you through another function of faith that is vital to your quality of life, both physical and spiritual. This function is where faith is both your focus guide, in other words, it guides you where to look, what to see, and how to see, and your focus keeper once you have settled on an objective or a goal or an end desire. It, faith is there to help keep you focused. Now, what this means is that focus is your guide to how you see things with your natural eyes and also how you see things with your spiritual eyes. At the same time, faith is also your focus keeper. Faith keeps you focused on the visible and spiritual things that are needed as you set out to achieve a desired end or accomplish uh, a specific goal. Understanding this function of faith is a key part to the secret of applying the word to your life. Now, training the eye to see and what to focus on is addressed throughout the word that we study in the Bible. Training the eye to see. The word reminds us that things are not always what they appear to be. The word also informs us that when you are able to see the invisible things of spirit, it opens up a whole new dimension of help and possibilities for you. Jesus addresses this issue in what he says in John 7, 24, at the top of the page. And you see it in writing there. Jesus says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now, I'm going to explain this in a little more detail than you may not have ever heard this before because... Righteous judgment in John 7, 24 is interpreted by many, and I have to say most religious teachers, as referring to being fair and honest in your judgment and not basing your appraisal on the superficial impression you get from a casual glance at the person or the situation. But I think Jesus is telling us something much deeper here, and I'm going to go into that with you this morning. I look at the statement of Jesus with the appreciation of the fact that the Gospel of John is a much more mystical gospel than the previous four synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John, it's a deeper mystical message that's inviting you to look at things in a more careful, spiritual way, and so forth. And when Jesus is informing us here of the fact that we live, oh, what I'm saying here is that when Jesus tells us to judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment, that last sentence in that paragraph, I say what Jesus is informing of, of here, and listen to this, is the fact that we live in two worlds. The physical world, which is a world of appearances, and the spiritual world, which is a world of reality where righteous judgment applies. Now you need to really study that. We're talking about two worlds. 
the physical world of appearances and the spiritual world. Now I'm going to tell you some other things about this, these two worlds that you may not have ever heard before. You actually live in both worlds, whether you are aware of this or not. It is important to train the eyes to see. Things are not always what they appear to be. For example, here's an example, because I said this is a good one, because you can see it. You see me speaking here and relying on this podium. It's actually really holding me up. It's holding my papers and my books up. And you see it as this solid thing, solid stuff. But in reality, that's the appearance, but in reality, this podium consists primarily of microscopic moving particles, moving microscopic particles. I should be able to put my hand right through it and so forth. There's an appearance, physical, and then there's a spiritual reality. See, not only do we have a spiritual reality, things, conditions, and, uh, and places also have a spiritual reality and so forth. And I'll talk about this a little bit later. Now, uh, you and I see the podium as solid, as I point out here, and next to the last paragraph on page six. Physicists are able to see the reality of the podium because they have entered into the kingdom of matter. They understand matter. They are conversant with microscopic and subatomic particles, while we are not, unless you studied physics. Uh, I, I did a little bit, but I don't know the, the extent that a trained physicist does. They can see the physical podium, and at the same time, they can see the invisible composition. This is what their physicist's eye which is like our spiritual eye, they can see the invisible composition of microscopic particles, which is the spiritual reality of the podium. The physical and spiritual sides of the podium exist side by side. You can't see one from the other, but both are here. That's the same with us. We have a physical appearance and we have a spiritual appearance and so forth. Now it's important to understand that you live in these two worlds, not one after the other. In other words, you live in the physical and then later the spiritual comes. You live in both at the same time. Now this is heavy stuff, that's why I'm going slow, so we get it and I'll go over it again for it. You live in both worlds at the same time. They are parallel worlds and you're in both at the same time. You live in the world of appearance, which is a three-dimensional, and at the top of page seven, world of form and shape, of time and space. Now this is what's important. In this world of appearances, you have all the fluctuating experiences of sickness and health, poverty and wealth, peace and war, all kinds of ups and downs. You have all kinds of opposites in this world. But at the same time, you also live in a spiritual world in, uh, as a spiritual being where there, is no, where there is only perfection and wholeness, perfect peace, no sickness, no inharmony, and no needs of any kind. Everything that you could ever need here in the physical world where you live already exists in the spiritual world. In fact, and you've heard us say this before, in fact, anything here in the physical world or anything that comes into this world exists first where? In the spiritual world. So everything you need already exists in the spiritual world. So the issue is how do you move them from the spiritual world into your physical world where they are needed? How do you move that new car that new house, if you're talking about material things, how do you move that new heart, 
that new kidney out of the physical realm. Let me just point out something right here. Uh, in that physical realm is that perfect kidney you need, that perfect heart that you need, that perfect everything is right there. And you can actually visualize it. Now, we'll talk about visualization later. You can visualize. In other words, if you have an ailing part of your body, you can visualize the perfect part of that body that's in the physical realm. And then you move the perfected part of what you need into the physical by faith and so forth. Now, this is going to take some discussion because this, I don't know, I, know I, th I think I taught this once before at 96th Street, but I don't know if you remember. Uh, again, but it takes more than one. Faith comes by hearing and hearing and hearing and so forth. Uh, so, uh, how do you move them from the spiritual world into your physical world where they are needed? The answer is you appropriate or transfer the things from the spiritual world into the physical world by faith. Again, this is why faith is so important. In the physical world, the currency of the realm is money. You acquire the things you need by spending money for it. In the spiritual world, which is actually more real than the physical world, the currency is faith. You acquire things from the spiritual world by your faith. Now, the things from the spiritual world, as I just said, are actually more real than the things in the, in the physical world because all things physical originate from a spiritual source. This is why we're told, and I give you that short little verse right here in 2 Corinthians 4.18, we're told this, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. But how do we look at the eternal things which are not seen? You see those with and through the eyes of faith. You see them through the eyes of faith. This goes to the various definition of faith, which we cited earlier, which is Hebrews 11, 1, which says this. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. In other words, if you're hoping for $100, faith is the substance of that. It's also the evidence of that $100 until you can see it. The unseen eternal things are what we hope for, and faith is the substance of these until they materialize on the spiritual world. I mean, from the spiritual world to our physical world. That's at the bottom of page seven. We're now up at the uh, top of page uh, eight. And it's also, as I said, the evidence or tangible proof of these unseen things until they come into our physical world. Not for the spiritual, but that's from the spiritual. That's the first sentence at the top page. Now, therefore, the things which are seen are temporary, which means that they are subject to change. When the Bible says the things that are seen are temporal or temporary, it means that they're subject to change. Why? Because that's not the finality of that situation. When you see something physical like this or something that's a problem, like an illness, as I told the class last, last week, that is reality, but it's not finality. It's always subject to change, especially subject to getting better, subject to getting worse, too, if you really uh, 
<laughs> don't do the things that you, you need to do. Now, whether you are looking at a person, a place, a thing, or a condition, and you may never have heard this before, each site that you see is subject to change. Everything is subject to change. For example, when I was down on 42nd Street, and you were saying, what are you doing on 42nd Street? 20 years ago, today, that 42nd Street is not the same. It has changed. Thank God it has changed. So forth and so on. I was catching the subway at 42nd and 7th to go home. But anyway, things are subject to change. Only the eternal things are permanent and don't change. So when you, uh, as I say it at the bottom, let me just read this. This is why a sick person can always be healed because the reality of that person in the spiritual world is always one of wholeness and wellness. When you pray for healing, you're actually praying for realization that you, or the person you're praying for, are, is or are already healed and whole, and so forth. When you look at yourself in the mirror, when you are experiencing sickness, you are judging yourself according to the appearance, you know, by the aches and pains and by the lumps and, 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 what, and so on. You're not seeing the spiritual dimension of yourself that is revealed through righteous judgment. As Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror darkly, but then face to face, now I know in part. That's appearance, but then I shall be known. Then I shall know just as I am also known. In other words, when you come into a realization of your spiritual self, you will be seen as you really are. You know that scripture in the Bible that says that, that I know that when I see Jesus, I shall be like him. Look like him. That's what this is talking about. When you come into the realization of your spiritual wholeness, you, you look like Jesus. Now, even in the Old Testament, uh, and this is, you can mark this down because it's not in the text. In 1 Samuel, uh, verse six, I mean, uh, chapter 16, verse 7, you remember what God says? He's telling Samuel that Samuel is looking to pick the next king, and he's looking at all of these handsome sons and so forth. And then he says, what about the, the one out in the field? Everybody expected him to pick one of the older sons uh, to be king. And what does he tell Samuel? He says, Samuel, don't look at the outer appearance. And the scripture, 16, 7, 1, Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7 says this, For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, the heart which is inside, and so forth. Because he knows that the outward appearance is only an appearance for the most sake, and so forth. So, after salvation, you are known spiritually by God as the image of Christ Jesus. Because through faith in Christ, I'm reading now that uh, paragraph just below where I quote uh, Paul. It says, after salvation, you are known spiritually by God as the image of Christ Jesus because through faith in Christ Jesus, you have become the righteousness of God. Elder Nate was saying this morning. The spiritual reality of you reflects the fact that there is this part of you that is greater than any sickness and stronger than any fears. The spiritual reality. We're reminded of this in 1 John 4, 4, which is right there before you. It says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater 
than he who is in the world. Who is it? Who is the he that's within you? I did, I did a 20 series on this of within dependence. It's the Godhead of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have all of that power and strength within you and so forth. As I said before, believers are, for the most, are, believers are for the most part asleep to this greater spiritual self, which is really our innate divine origin. And here's a good time to ask you this question, which has been asked before. Did you have or did we have an existence before coming here on earth anywhere else? Most everybody said yes. Where was that existence? Where? It was, it was in heaven. If somebody, it's a lot of you said. And there you existed how? As a spirit. So forth. So what happens when you're born, when you come into this earth plane through the birth canal of your mother, what happens? When we are born, the memory of that divine origin in heaven is for some reason blotted out. Now I can't explain that to you. It's blotted out. And this is what the poet William Wordsworth, William Wordsworth is referring to, and I quoted this to you before. When he wrote this, he says, our birth is a sleep and a forgetting. In other words, when we're born, we forget about our spiritual uh, reality when we're born. And, uh, and we begin to focus on our physical being and so forth. And so because our birth is a sleep and a forgetting, uh, you have us being urged in Ephesians 5.14 that says this. Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Now, obviously, it's not talking about dead as in mortal dead. It means dead to the reality of yourself, and, and Christ will give you light. Now, all of this is pointing out the fact that you heard this statement, you know, there's more to you than meets the eye. It's true. There's more to you than meets the eye. And then you hear people say so many times, well, you know, what do you expect from me? You expect me to do better? I'm only human. Well, you're more than human. You are human and divine. You're both, so forth. So that light that Christ gives you, that's the light of Christ. That's the light of the truth of your spiritual identity that is revealed through righteous judgment. Again, this is why we study the word in the Bible, so that you can gain knowledge of who you really are. It is by faith that you lay hold of and walk in this reality. Now, this light from Christ. So you have Jesus telling us uh, in Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. Matthew 5.14, you can write it down. I may incorporate all this when I re-edit this and so forth, but it's Matthew 5.14. It says, you are the light of the world. And in verse 16, it says, let your light so shine that men will see your good works and glorify God. This is the light of Christ. This is the light of your spiritual self. You are that point here on earth where the light of God shines through. Now, let me repeat that. In fact, you say it yourself. I am that point where the light of God shines through. That's, that's wherever you are. Each one of us is that point where the light of God shines through. Now, in terms of appearance, I'm in the second paragraph on page 9. The same is true for lack or any material need. In a spiritual world, you may, you, I mean, in a spiritual world, you have no lack or need. This is why the word says in Philippians 4.12, 
My God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. It is by faith that you grab hold of this realization of wellness and wholeness and grab hold of the realization that all your needs are met. You can be healed and materially whole because there's a dimension of you in the spiritual world that is always healed and whole and lacking nothing. By his suffering on the cross, where he took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, which we talk about today, Communion Day, Jesus effectuates this permanent state of healing and well-being for us. This is what we see in the word in Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5. You're familiar with that. which says, we are healed. 1 Peter 2.24, Ellen 8 quoted these this morning. It says, you were healed. We are healed. We were healed. So that means we is healed. We are, we are healed. We are healed. It's done already. You can be healed and materially whole because there's a dimension of you in the spiritual world that is always, always healed and whole and lacking nothing. As I said. Now, Going back to John 7, 24, where Jesus talks about judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. To judge righteous judgment is actually seeing things correctly or rightly. That is seeing past the appearance of a physical person and seeing the spiritual person who is whole, well, and wonderful. This is what Jesus did when he did his healings. Whereas the disciples and the people around saw the person eyes blinded or the person with leprosy and so forth. Jesus just looked right past the leprosy and right past the blindness because he knew that the spiritual reality of the people was wholeness and wellness. That's how healing took place with Jesus. It, looked play, it took place by him knowing that you are healed and whole and wonderful and so forth. Now he did some things like lay hands on people and he, you remember he took some clay and spittle and put it on the person's eyes. Sometimes you do some things for this to take place. And with the lep lepers, you remember, as they went, they were healed. You have to do something. That's the motion part that I'm talking about. You have to do something. You get up. In other words, the, the lepers, he said, you're cleansed. Go. They got up and went. If the lepers had sat there and said, wait a minute, I still see the leprosy. No. The leprosy left them as they went and so forth. They got in action and so forth and so on. So, this appearance that we see that's not reality, as I said before, is true of individuals, it's true of places, it's true of conditions, and so on. And it's true of things that you see. Uh, and when we judge according to appearance, we end up making things worse most of the time. And I quote my, one of my favorite philosophers, this is Goethe, this is not in the, in, in the text here, so you can, that's one reason why you get the tape, because we don't always, we say things that are, because that are they come to you. Goethe, who was a German philosopher, thinker, religious teacher, and so forth, he says this in, 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 in his book, Faust. He says, if you take people as they are, based on what they appear to be, you make them worse. Because what you're doing is you're reinforcing that negative image of them, which is not their reality, but that's what they appear to be. But then he goes on to say this, but if you treat them the way they should be, you make them what they can be. So if you treat them in terms of how they should be spiritually, then you make them what they can be, which is the spiritual reality and so forth. Very, very good point. Very good point.
Now, when we start seeing things rightly, we can follow the practice of Father God that we saw in Romans 4.17, where he, God, calls those things which do not exist as though they did. And when we learn to see rightly by faith, we improve our physical sight and we improve our spiritual sight in so many ways. We learn the importance of seeing and we learn the powerful art of visualization. We learn the absolute necessity of seeing before getting. You have to see it before you get it. I'm going to take a couple more minutes. Okay? You don't mind, do you? Okay. All right. So God gives us this example of seeing before getting in Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. And you have it here at the, the bottom of that first paragraph at the top of page 10. He shows us the necessity of seeing before you get. So God says in Genesis 13, verse 14, he says, this is to Abraham, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. 15, for all the land which you see, I give you and your descendants forever. God is telling Abraham and us, the believer of the day, that if you can see it, you can have it. And by inference, we can conclude that if you can't see it, you won't have it. The reality is if you can't see your goal, where you want to be, whether that's goal is walking across the stage, getting your bachelor's or master's or doctor degree or law degree or whatever, if you can't see it, uh, you can't have it. You have to see it. He's telling us the importance of that. From Genesis, Abraham goes on to tell us to actually see our end goal, walking across the stage, business open and prospering, we see that desired end and result from the beginning. You have the ability to see it from the beginning because that's what he does. And you see this in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 when he says, you have it right there, that I am God, there's none besides me, declaring the end from the beginning. He's saying, I'm seeing the end from the beginning. We can do the same thing. See your goal is already achieved and you state it up front. You see it and so forth. Now, he says, there's none like him, but we actually are like him. Why? Because we're made in his spiritual image and likeness. So we too can declare the end from the, the beginning. We can see and declare the success of our goal or desired result at the time we embark on it uh, as an enterprise. In terms of visualization of our goals, God says to be sure to write the vision down and commit it to mind and memory. Vision writing and visualization are so important because it's part of our seeing a goal or desired result. Top of page 11, as part of her teaching, Cassandra Lenore does an excellent job with her vision board teaching and projects. If you haven't been to one of her vision board uh, lessons, I urge you to go. It is excellent. You get some good, good instruction and direction and actual hands-on experience in doing this. We see God's direction on vision boarding in Habakkuk 2, verses 2 and 3, where he says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, that he who may run, uh, that he who may run, who reads it. In other words, people who are running the race can see it and so forth. Drop down, you can read the rest of it on your own, but drop down to the next sentence. It says, so when we see our desired goal, when we see that goal completed and successful at the time we begin, and when we write the vision down, we have for the future, that we have for the future, we can do, you do all those things in faith, by the way. You see it completed by faith. And you can visualize it completed, and you do this by faith, 
and so forth. Remember in faith, we can call those things that be not as though they were. Now, in applying the word to your life that you gain from studying the word, you learn the importance of the five stages in achievement. And I list them there. And I've done these with you before. Conceptualize, internalize, visualize, verbalize, materialize. And quickly, the bottom of page 11, you normally conceptualize or think about an idea, project, business, prospect, or any kind of endeavor, you think about it in your mind. If the endeavor is a strongly held prospect, you then internalize it, meaning that you give it your emotional consent. You get it on the inside of you, so forth. The third is that you visualize it. That's seeing your goal, meaning you see it coming into form and you see it in its completed successful stage at the end, so forth. And the fourth step, you verbalize your goal. And this is so important. I'll come back to this again. We've talked about it. It's very important to speak your goal, to verbalize it. Now, you say, well, I don't want to tell people because they might discourage me and so forth. You may not tell anybody, but guess who you verbalize it to? Looking in the mirror to yourself, you verbalize it to. And of course, you talk, to, talk about it with a few people who are necessary for your success in that. But you don't blab it. You don't announce it to the public that, that this is what, you, what you're going to do. Most people who blurt out what they're going to do like that to you know, the whole world, things happen and uh, things work against you and so forth. So the fifth and final stage is when you do the other four, that's when the project materializes and you can see it on the outward plane. And then, of course, you don't have to tell anybody. It speaks for itself. Now, again, it is by faith that you go through the various stages where you add your corresponding action to your project. To, to, uh, you add your corresponding action to perfect your faith. It is Alan perfecting his faith by practice, practice, practice. It is faith that will help you focus on the right thing. Alan focused on making those baskets and to see things rightly. It is faith that will help keep you focused throughout the entire process. His faith and belief that he was going to get to the NBA kept him through some 20 years focusing on the game and so forth, keeping his eye on the ball, as it were, and so forth. Now, again, Apostle Paul tells us in Hebrews 12, 1, because you want to keep your eye on the word, keep your eye on Jesus. Apostle Paul tells us this in Hebrews 12, 1. He says, therefore, and we're reading that, it's right there before you. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. In faith, you keep your eyes on Jesus as you stay focused on the goal and go about doing the things necessary to achieve your objections. You focus on Jesus. Why? Because he's our example of obedience and endurance. And Jesus, after all, is the word. And you want to stay focused on the word. Now, in our final example of focus today, we look to how faith-directed focus will keep you steady, sure, and free of stress. Because whenever you're doing anything, stress is bound to be a part of it. But this is how you stay stress-free. It's looking at one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Isaiah, 20, Isaiah 26, 3, which says, you, meaning God, will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. God will keep you in perfect peace if your mind is focused on him. That's how you keep your mind focused on, on God is by keeping your mind focused on his word. 
So this is, this is why we study God's word in the Bible, and by keeping focus on this word in all our ways is how we apply the word to our life. I hope you will take this and study it. And if you have any questions, you can feel free to ask me. Not today. <laughs> but when you see me in the future. With that, every head bowed, we're going to pray. Now, Father, we thank you for your word as always. And we know that your word will not return to you void, but will, in fact, accomplish that which it was intended. If it's intended to bring someone to Christ, it'll do that. If it's intended to bring someone to church membership, it'll do that. If it's designed to heal someone, it'll do that. If it's designed to give someone assurance of salvation, it'll do that. And if it's designed to facilitate the gift of the Holy Spirit, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, it will do that. So we know that it will not return to you void. And Father, we thank you for your word. We know that your word is true. And as Jesus said, if we know the truth, it shall make us free. So we are free indeed. Our hope is that you received something that you could apply to your life and strengthen your faith. At Crenshaw Christian Center, New York, we believe that the Word of God is practical for everyday application. Feel free to stay in touch with us via social media, or you can give us a call at 212-749-9323. If you're in the New York area, you're welcome to join us at one of our services. Our Sunday morning service is at the New Yorker Hotel at 9.45 a.m. That's on 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City. Or join us for Bible study on Thursday evenings at our fellowship office, 470 7th Avenue on the 6th floor, right in Herald Square. Thanks again for listening, and remember, walk by faith, not by sight.